Good morning. Welcome to Tomball Bible Church. It's my pleasure to open up the scriptures with you uh, this morning. If you're a guest with us, we want to make sure and welcome you, especially if you are here because someone that is close to you is getting baptized this morning. We also want to make sure uh, that we extend our warmest welcome to you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to grab one off the ends of the rows. There should be a paperback ESV Bible there. And I want to encourage you, if you don't own one, uh, to take that home with you as our gift to you. Uh, so we're going to be in the book of First John this morning as we continue to progress through First John, this letter that John had written to the church to encourage them as they went through a difficult season. We're going to be in chapter 4 this morning. And as you're turning there, I, I want to tell you a story that I think is very helpful for us this morning. In the days following World War I, the French set out to change things. They had endured heavy casualties, both in life and property, through the war. And they decided that they needed to take action to strengthen their borders and bolster their defense against invading armies. Particularly of concern to them was the German front. So along the border of Germany and France, they built something known as the Maginot Line. They began in 1928 with the construction of this extensive border defense took them 10 years and 4 billion francs to construct. So they began in 1928. And I want to tell you the plan for this line of defense. The first was what they called the border post line. Immediately upon the border, there were a series of houses that were built. And they were essentially small barracks and outposts. They looked like homes, but they were really heavily reinforced homes with portable barricades and explosives in case they saw a sneak or surprise attack. So right on the border, we had some covert outposts there with explosives. The second is what they called the outpost and support line approximately three miles into the border, which was a line of anti-tank blockhouses armed with heavy artillery. The third Layer is what they called the principal line of resistance. And this was about six miles inside the border, which had anti-tank obstacles, which were essentially metal rails about uh, two and a half to four feet tall, buried seven feet deep. And so just every so often you'd have this series of metal rails coming up to impede a tank's progress, followed by personnel barriers with thick barbed wire and small mines placed there. To stop an invading army. Behind that they had what they called infantry casemates. Which were bunkers armed with twin machine guns. And anti-tank guns of 37 or 47 millimeters. They generally had two floors. They were uh, supplied with their own electricity. Climate control. Food. These housed about a hundred men. Next to that you had a small fortress. Which was a reinforced line of infantry bunkers. Generally made up of several bunkers. Connected by underground tunnels. And narrow gauge railway. These housed up to 200 infantrymen. Behind that was what they called their large fortresses. They were probably the most important fortifications on the line. Because they were the heaviest in construction. And they had the strongest artillery. In addition to that they had at least six forward bunker systems or combat blocks. Which had underground entrances housing upwards of 300 infantrymen. They had observation posts. Situated along hills, to hills and high points to provide a view of any oncoming attack. It was all connected together by a redundant telephone network with at least two lines going into each location from different angles. So if lines were cut, there would be a fallback. 
They had infantry reserve shelters stationed within uh, six miles of the, the front, each containing an additional 250 men with their own electric generators and ventilation systems in case of gas attacks. They had situationed naturally naturally flooding zones so that at the moment's notice they could unleash dams and flood areas that the enemy army might be attempting to pass through. They had what they called safety quarters built next to the major fortifications so that crews could reach their fighting station without having any travel or above ground transport. They had supply depots stationed strategically, what they called ammunition dumps, where they could go to refill. A narrow-gauge rail system connecting it all. High-voltage transmission lines underground connecting it to the electricity grid. And then a heavy rail artillery system. So large guns mounted on rail cars that they could move from place to place as needed. And the belief was that if we built this fortified border... That never again would we be threatened by oncoming military attack. Never again would the Germans come and take over France. And so 10 years later, in 1938, they completed construction. They spent over 4 billion francs doing that. And they believed they had created an impenetrable line of defense between them and Germany. And in 1940, May the 10th, The Germans attacked France, and within six weeks, Paris was under Nazi rule. Having invested and created this amazing defense and having absolute and complete certainty in its effectiveness, without much of a fight, France was taken. And the reason was that uh, that border doesn't stop planes from flying over. And the Nazi army said, we're not going to deal with that. We'll just go through Luxembourg. Battle of France didn't take too long. They were confident, though. You and I have those kinds of things in life where we have great confidence, and sometimes it's in things that we should not put our confidence in. We can have confidence in things that are not trustworthy. And today in 1 John, the Scriptures are going to tell us how we can have true assurance before God. And we want to talk about what that means, the word assurance, because it's not one that we use every day. And so what we mean is this idea that we're going to stand before God someday. You and I will stand before the Lord and we will make an account for our lives. Every man, woman will stand before him. And the question that John is answering is how can we approach that? with confidence that we will be received into God's kingdom. The word assurance is basically defined as this, to have full confidence or certainty or the absence of doubt in something. So the question John is dealing with today for us is how do we know that we can stand before the Lord with confidence on the day of judgment that we will be admitted into his kingdom, that we will enter into the joys of heaven. And so that's the question we want to dig into today. How do we get true assurance before God? How do we know that what we have placed our certainty in before him is not false, but is worthy of our trust? And I want to encourage you to look to 1 John chapter 4 this morning as we begin to answer that question. We're going to begin in verse 7. 
Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love, and in this the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent His only Son into the world that we might have that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also love one another. The first place that we find assurance or certainty as we stand before God is in God's love for us. We can be assured And have confidence before the throne of God because God has demonstrated that he loves us. The scripture is very clear there that we have a relationship with God because he loved us. Not because we loved him, but because he sought us and poured out his love upon us. So we can have certainty as we stand before God because he loves us. Now I want to talk about these verses for a bit because we just read one of the most misunderstood and misused verses in the Bible. See, the Bible tells us here very plainly, God is love. And a lot of people not understanding what love is will use that verse to defend all sorts of ridiculous things that the Bible plainly says to be false. And so I want us to understand what is going on here in these few verses we just read. We find out that God is love and we also find that the way he loved us and demonstrated his love towards us is what the Bible says is making propitiation for our sins. Right? Not an everyday English word. Some translations will say atonement. And, and what it means is that God, as a righteous judge, looks upon sin and sin deserves and demands a penalty. Because he's a righteous judge. See, no one can walk into the courtroom of a righteous and fair judge who operates in absolute justice and be guilty and expect to walk away with no penalty. It's just not reasonable. The system's not just if guilty men and women don't make payment for sin. And so the Bible says that that God demonstrated his love for us by making propitiation or atonement for our sin, which is to say he made payment. The Bible communicates that all men have fallen short of God's glory. We've all sinned because of that. We deserve God's judgment. But rather than pouring his judgment upon us, he sent his son in human form to pay for men. To pay for people just like us, the sin penalty that we deserve to pay. But that was so great that we couldn't pay it. See, God has spent his judgment as Jesus endured the penalty for us, as Jesus paid the fine for us. What we understand about that is that love does not dismiss or excuse sin. We can't say God is love as a way to gloss over sinful behavior and attitude. To say that God is love does not mean that we endorse everything that someone we care about does. We can at the same time dearly love someone and believe wholeheartedly that what they're doing is wicked and harmful. Our world wants to tell us that if we look upon someone's decision making and we say that's wrong, that we hate them. I would present to you that lying to someone so that they feel better is not love. But it's the definition of hate. If I saw someone I dearly cared about walking towards the edge of the cliff. And as they approach it, if I don't say anything, because you know I don't want to crush their self-esteem. When they're going to fall off a cliff, I don't love them. 
In fact, I don't, I don't really care for them at all. What I do love is me. And I don't want the conflict that might come from raising my voice at this person. I'd rather watch them walk over the cliff. It's not love to dismiss, gloss over, and pretend sin isn't real. So when we look at this definition of love, that God is love, we find that in His essence, God is love. And in the midst of that, without any contradiction, is that God is just. And because of that, through Jesus' blood, He has made payment for our sin. But it isn't a love that dismisses sin and pretends it doesn't exist. Love looks sin squarely in the face, calls it what it is, and demonstrates grace and an opportunity for repentance. But we can be assured in God's love for us because he's poured out his love upon us. The Bible is great in this respect, is that any time we're going to communicate the love of God, the Bible will then lead us to an action in the history of God that reminds us of that truth. In the Old Testament, there was one central story they told and retold. In the Old Testament, any time they needed to prove God's power and love for the people of Israel, they would tell the story of the Exodus. The story of the people in Israel in slavery. And the story of a God who rescued them. Who conquered the largest empire in the world. A God who opened up oceans so his people could walk through them. And a God who drowns the mightiest army the world had ever seen. And they tell the story over and over again. The story of a God who led them through the wilderness. The story of a God who fed them each day from heaven. And it's a reminder of his care and affection and his provision so that the people of God know today we can trust him because he's been trustworthy every other day. So we tell that story. In the New Testament, the Bible tells another story. A story of God rescuing his people from the slavery and bondage of sin. A story of God leading us into the promised land with his people. It's the story of Jesus' death for us. So when when John says he made propitiation for your sin, it's not just some abstract concept. There's a particular event in view. When Jesus, the only Son of God, God in flesh, went to the cross and endured its suffering from us. When the Father watched His Son crucified. He said He made propitiation. So He tells us, if you ever doubt the love of God, if you've ever doubted His kindness towards you, you look back to the cross. What more does he need to do to prove that he loves you? I mean, he sent his only son to die a brutal death in your place. He loves you. And so we can trust in his goodness. So we approach the throne of God. We can approach with confidence. When we look to the day of judgment, we can go forward with assurance because we have seen the love of God in clear, in clear ways that are indisputable. He's demonstrated that he loves us. The scriptures continue in verse 13 to give us another means by which we can have assurance. In verse 13, begin with me. He says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in Him, and, God's ab- and God abides in Him. 
And by this is love, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. I want you to see that we have confidence. By what? By the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can have confidence before the day of judgment because of the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives. I want you to see that. He says the Spirit of God has enabled you to believe in the love of God. See, there are thousands upon thousands of people who have heard the message of God's love for them and haven't believed it. And they've rejected it for a hundred reasons. For some people, the idea of a God who judges rightly, they can't get past. They, they won't get past. For some of us, uh, we'll struggle with that because the reality is um, we all know innately that we're not good people. Like we, we will tell people we are, but we know that we're not. I want you to think about this. We, we've got five kids. We love them dearly. We've... Now, never once has Leisha done something like mildly that annoyed me and I like hit her or took something from her. It hasn't ever happened. And yet, my kids do that to one another. We didn't teach or instruct that. We, we didn't say, if your little brother takes something from you, this is a dog-eat-dog world, man. Take him out. That's not part of our instructional process in raising children. And yet, it's an innate response that they have. Why? Because when we held them at the day of their birth and we said they're perfect, we were lying. They were cute and they had ten fingers and ten toes and that was good enough. Reality is, in all of us, innately is this bent towards sin. We're not good people, and so we have two options. We can either look that in the face and recognize that we're going to need to be saved, or we're going to deny it and rationalize it and come up with really creative arguments that make us feel better about the fact that we're not good people. And so here's probably the most popular. There's no God, right? Look, science can't get you to atheism. I'm sorry. It, it, it doesn't even deal with that question. Science is a study of, of the created world. It, it, it can't tell you what's not natural because it's, it's a natural science. It, so, so science ends at a point, and then there's issues of philosophy, ethics, and theology, which are not unrelated, but not identical. So, so you can't really get there. You've got to have a bent or a desire to get there, which is understandable in our sin nature that we would lean that way. Because it's much more comfortable to go to bed at night believing that there is no accountability if I don't want to stare in the face the reality that I need to be saved or redeemed or changed. There's a hundred reasons. Everyone in this room has heard the love of God. We just told you, but some of you don't believe. Because the issue between hearing and believing is a work of the Spirit of God. And you can have assurance before God. It says, if you believed in that message, not because of something you did, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's ministry within you gives you confidence before God because He didn't send Him to you to leave you. He sent you to guide you into all truth. The Bible says He seals you until the day of Christ. And so if the Spirit is present and we confess Jesus as the only Lord, then we can have confidence and assurance before God because the Spirit of God has promised to complete what he's begun in us. So if the Spirit resides in us, we can have confidence. 
The third thing John gives us so that we can have assurance or certainty is our relationship with our Father. Because we know Him as Father. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commands. So how do we know that we're born of God? How do we know that we're his children? Well, one of the interesting things is that we begin to look to him as a father. It says, everyone who loves the father loves those who have been born of him. By this we know, right? How do we know? Well, we, we, we embrace God as a father. You see, outside of knowing God through Jesus Christ, our disposition towards him is not to run to him as a loving father. It's to ignore him. To view him as unnecessary in the world or potentially to view God in some way as a taskmaster who's here to rob us of our joy that we appease to keep off of our backs. To view him as an unfair employer who demands that we do certain things. and to View him as a passive father that lets us do whatever we want and doesn't care about anything. There's a hundred different ways we can view God. But rightly knowing him as a father who dearly loves us, who provides for us, who disciplines his children, who never walks away from us. To know him in that way is an indicator of the spirit of God as it work in us. And then since we know him and look to him as a father, we can be certain that for us he will always be a loving father. I want to encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8 tells us how we come to know God as Father. And it's incredibly important. Because this isn't a natural thing. In verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Think about this. Is that you looking to God and, and seeing him as a loving father is an indicator that the Spirit of God has called you to him. Because that's not a natural way to view him. Is that in our sin we shrink back from him, but because of the grace of God poured out upon us through the Spirit of God, we now come to him as a father and we love him because we've been adopted. It's not a spirit that gives way to fear. We don't approach him that way because you don't approach a loving father frightened. You approach him with joy. Even if discipline is coming, there's comfort. Because we see him rightly. And for us, he is a father. And so our faith tells us that he will always continue to be our father. And I want you to, to walk through this with me. We can have assurance. We can be certain when we stand before God. We, we can have that certainty first because of his love for us and the evidence of that being the cross. We can have assurance because of his ministry of the Holy Spirit that has led us to faith. We can have assurance because he's a good and loving father to those who come to him. 
And I want to encourage you to to look with me, guys, in the back. This is a curveball. We're going to go into Romans 8 and verse 31. I want you to listen to these words. We're going to read a decent-sized chunk of Scripture here. We're not not going to take every line apart. I want you to just just let this kind of sit and just, just soak in what you're hearing from the words of God this morning. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus who is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Just kind of let that sit for a minute. Go. How do we have assurance before God? How do we have certainty as we approach Him in prayer? How do we have assurance as we look to the day that we'll stand before Him in judgment where we're either sent to, to, to just and righteous penalty or to eternal life? How do we know that God's going to receive us into His grace? And, and what Paul's going to tell us, led by the Holy Spirit, is you look at all this stuff, realize this. God didn't even spare His only Son for you. You notice we go back to that story again. He gave Him up freely for you. He says, because of that, I am convinced of His love. He says, more than that, I'm convinced no matter what this world throws at me, that He is good to me. I am convinced that no matter what happens, His love has not departed from me. He says, I'm convinced that nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And I I love this exhaustive language. He says, nothing in all of creation. So first he gives you a list of all of the things that you might think, if you endured them, would make you question, does God really love me? So we've got this long list. And then if that weren't enough, Paul says, man, I'm convinced that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. Let me submit something to you this morning, is that, that nothing else in all of creation includes you. Includes you. Nothing you could do can separate you from the love of God. Well, why is that? Because he loves you like a father. And as a dad, and your kids can hurt you. They can walk away. But the heart of a father ought to be continually loving, long-suffering, unwavering. And God represents what the heart of a father ought to be. We find the same instruction in Ephesians chapter 2. I want to encourage you guys to turn there. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I want you to, to think about what, what he's just laid out for us. The first uh, three verses of Ephesians 2 establish that, that, that we are sinful in ways we don't imagine, right? And, and that because of that, we are not deserving of God's love. In fact, we're children of wrath, it says, that we deserve God's judgment. But God is rich in mercy and loved us with this unimaginable love. And, and in that, he saved us, he's drawn us and made us alive together with Christ. That's what we celebrate in baptism. It's the imagery, is that someone goes into the water and it identifies a moment of death, that an old way of life has passed away and that a new life with the power of God to glorify Him, walking in submission to the Holy Spirit, that's a possibility and a reality. And so we celebrate the death of an old life and the beginning of a new one. And he says, that's what God has done. He's made you alive in Christ. Spiritually, you were dead, and now you've been made alive. And, and I love what he tells us. He did that for a reason. He said he did that so that, so that, and this is what amazes me, so that in the coming ages he might pour out his immeasurable riches upon us think about it so that, that for ages the, the greek word is eons for, for millennia that god's intention in redeeming us is to pour out his love on us lavishly extravagantly in christ they got God didn't just look at us and go, you know, Jesus died for you, so I have to forgive you. I don't really like you right now, but that's the deal. Not guilty. Get out of my courtroom. That, that's not what we got. And if we got that, we should celebrate that because that's far better than we deserve. But, but what we got was, was the judge looking at us, saying, not guilty. And though his own son had died for us, saying, you know what? We could use someone else in the family and adopting us and taking us home and treating us just as he does his only son, loving us in the same unending way, lavishing his grace upon us for, he says, for ages to come. And so this is, this is what we rest in, guys, is a God who dearly loves us. And this is where I think it's really important is that we understand the source of our assurance before God and who it comes from. I want you to see what it shouldn't look like. In Matthew chapter 7, if you would turn your Bible there, I want you to see some people who were confident before the Lord in all the wrong things. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Now, I want you to think when you hear these words, if you haven't, but this is in the red letter. So these are the words of Jesus. And, and, and reading this, hearing this, if you followed the kind of the, the larger story in America that Jesus was this really nice guy who, who never had anything negative or harsh to say ever about anyone, then this is going to conflict that. And I would encourage you to get to know the Jesus of the Bible. And I want you to hear what, what he says this morning. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did not we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers in lawlessness. I want you to see something here. Jesus says there's going to be a lot of people. You notice that many, a lot of people who on the day of judgment will be very confident when they stand before the throne of God. They're going to believe that they are entering into the kingdom of heaven. That's their expectation and they're confident in it. And the reality is that they're deceived. They're like the French who built the Maginot line and thought they were safe. They have confidence in something they ought not have confidence in. So they're very certain as they enter this judgment with Jesus and and they're going to come to him. And the question is asked, why should you be entered into the kingdom of heaven? And they're going to say, look at their response. We we did this and this and this and this. and, And we said your name a lot. And Jesus is going to look at them and say, depart from me. I never knew you. They were very confident. And very wrong. I want you to see where their confidence was. And I want you to compare that to what we saw in the scriptures. of Our assurance being in his love for us. The ministry of his spirit to us. And his disposition as a father towards us. That's what we're confident in. And I want you to see their confidence is in the stuff that they did. A stark contrast. We're confident in in God and they were confident in themselves. And and I want to just press that for a moment. If you believe that you will stand before a righteous and holy God and make your case for entrance into heaven based on the effort and work of mere men, you will be woefully disappointed. If you believe that some religious ceremony or or, or that, that some good work or good deed is going to be sufficient and that Jesus is going to look at you and go, well, that's good enough. You're wrong. And, and I want you to understand that. Because the source of our certainty and assurance has got to be fixed and it cannot be us. It is purely in God and His unimaginable love for us. And so I'm secure as I approach eternity. I'm secure as I come before the Lord in prayer. I have confidence in that moment, but not because of me. Because the love of God for me is completely unrelated to me. It was His decision to love me. In Romans 5, verse 8, it says that that God loved us. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. That He moved towards us in love, not waiting for us to move towards Him because we were incapable, but pressing into us solely based on his decision to love us, that he made on his own, unilaterally. He didn't need us to decide that he could love us. He chose to. And he looked upon us and he made us his children. And the Spirit of God has made us alive in Christ. And so we're just there enjoying the party, but we didn't bring anything to the table. And so we stand before him. He says, why should you enter in the kingdom of heaven? The answer is not, I did some great stuff and I talked about you a lot. The answer is, you're blood has covered my sin. And you've promised that if I believe in you, that I'm yours forever. And so I'm confident today, God, before you because of you. Because of who you are. Not because of me. 
And when we kind of get that disposition and that idea around our walk with the Lord, it liberates us. And I want to show you three ways in 1 John that this frees us. If you look at in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We've been set free from fear. We can live fearlessly as we walk with the Lord. Knowing that no matter what this world might throw at us, that God is with us. Knowing that He's good to us. Even when we stumble, that God loves us and He's there to restore and renew us. And so we don't come to Him fearfully. We come to Him seeking mercy. One of the things I have to, to guard against as a dad is this tendency that, uh, what, you know, when your kids hurt yourself, it's, hurt themselves, it's usually because they did something you told them not to do. And so my, my immediate gut reaction is often, what did you do that for, rather than to, to give comfort? And, and the danger, if I, if, I, if I don't rein that in, is that my kids will stop running to me for comfort, right? God, it, by, by his amazing power and ability, is just a much better dad than me. And so when we come to him for comfort, that's what he offers. So when we fall down and and we fail, we have a father who comes to comfort us. Now, he's going to instruct, he's going to discipline, but comfort is present. And so we come to him and we can. We don't have to be fearful to go before the Lord in confession and repentance because he offers comfort and mercy to those who come to him. So we're freed from fear. We're freed to enjoy his love. Because when we realize that we don't have to earn it, and it's in no way kind of predicated on our performance, we can just enjoy it. We're not worried about losing it. We can just enjoy it. And and, and experience the blessing of knowing Him, of resting in Him. We're also set free to love others well. Because out of the overflow of God's love for us flows our love for other people. As God loves us and we love Him in return, He begins to change our hearts so that we see other people the way He does, so that the people who frustrated or bothered us, we we begin to see in a different light. We begin to see maybe the things they've walked through that have shaped them. We begin to have compassion towards them. And experiencing the love of God in that way, where we recognize how much we have sinned against Him, how frequently we have rejected and offended Him, and how freely He gives grace to us, begins to change us so that we're those kind of people. We give grace freely and we love. So true assurance before God, not based on us, but based on Him. Not based on our performance, but based on His goodness. It sets us free. It sets us free from fear and its bondage. It sets us free from the, th- the thought that we have to earn His love through performance. And it, it sets us free to love and serve other people. And, and I would just say this to you today, is that if you came here today... And you had confidence or hope for eternity that was based off anything that you did. And it's just not going to be good enough. That our hope for eternity is purely based off of what God has done for us. And the beauty in that, guess the beauty in that, is that because His love for us is not based on us, nothing we could do will push Him away. 
Because his decision to love us was his decision. In Deuteronomy 7, as, as God looks on the people of Israel and his decision to care for them, I love this, the way that he answers the question, why do you love Israel? He says, I love you because I chose to love you. See, I didn't love you because you were this great nation. In fact, you were the weakest and smallest of the nations. I loved you because I chose to love you. And there's a deep mystery in that. I don't know why God would choose to love me. And, and, and the beauty of it is I just celebrate it. I'm so thankful for it. And, and if God has loved us because he's chosen to love us, we just trust him. So don't think today that you're going to do something to earn his care and somehow buy your way out of his judgment. God's already paid the price. You need to trust him. It's the only means of assurance before the day of judgment and confidence before him in prayer is that we lean on him. His love for us, his spirit's presence in us and the heart of a father that he has towards us. Let's pray today. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of infinite grace and mercy, that you have loved us exceedingly beyond anything we could imagine. We thank you that your love for us is solely based in your sovereign decision to love us. Because, Lord, if it were based on us, there'd be so many times that it would be right and reasonable to walk away. I just thank you that you're patient. Father, I pray today that you would give us assurance, not based on the things that we have done, but based on your care for us. Based on the demonstrated reality that you love us when you sent your son to die for our sins. And the demonstrated reality of your power over all things when you raised him from the grave. Lord, I pray that we would walk in that with joy. And I pray for those who are here today who have not trusted in your son Jesus, who have trusted in a million other things as their means of security for the next life. Lord, I pray that you would bring them to you. Today would be the day that they cease running from you or that they cease striving to earn your care and they simply trust you as the God who loves them, who sent his son to die for them. And that today would be a great day of joy. In Jesus' name, amen.